Training as a doctor is both challenging and rewarding. The experiences in my early years of being a doctor will stay with me forever. They enabled me to work with a variety of people, train in different specialties and shaped my career as a medical professional. But over the years, Britain's junior doctors have been the subject of intense political debate. Since I qualified, their working conditions have been discussed 584 times in the UK Parliament. They faced extremely tough working conditions, with too few staff to get the job done. This all culminated in 2016, when contract negotiations with the government, or the lack thereof, resulted in strike action. With all of this going on, and the small job of saving lives in the meantime, how can junior doctors strike any sort of work-life balance? And how has this changed over time? I'm Dr Hilary Geit for Medical News Today, and I'm discussing this with Fred, who is entering his second year as a doctor. Hi Fred, how's things? Hi Hilary, I'm good, how are you? Oh, I'm all right, yeah. Well, I, ha- I don't do on call anymore. <laughs> so I qualified in 1981, nearly 40 years ago, and I spent about seven years as a junior doctor in hospitals. So I qualified last year, 2019, and I've just completed 12 months of my first foundation year training at quite a large teaching hospital in northwest England. When I was a junior doctor, the average hours that people were doing was 90 hours. Wow. <laughs> and I did various jobs, and my worst was something called a three-in-five rotor. I tried to work out how that actually ever pans out. There are only 168 hours in a week, and my worst week was 135 hours, and my best was about 93. So tell me, how many hours do you do on average now? <laughs> it's quite a lot less. I work about 40 hours a week of standard non-on-call shifts and then about eight hours on-call on top of that. So it averages out to about 48 hours a week, about half what your average was when you started. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I did crazy jobs. I did really busy jobs in teaching hospitals. I was doing care of the elderly and general medicine and general surgery and then medical oncology. That was the busiest. So having done a full week with at least one on call. The on call is start at nine o'clock in the morning, go all the way through the night and work all the next day as if you haven't worked all through the night and then finish whenever the patients are sorted and then go home and then start again at nine. So having done all that Monday to Friday and then start again at like nine o'clock on Friday morning and then go all the way through to Monday evening when all the patients were sorted. And I would probably get three or four hours sleep Gosh. on a good weekend. Sometimes just none. I fell asleep on a patient once. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I was, I was just doing the uh, cardiac examination and I put my stethoscope on his heart. And you know how it's, it's very peaceful, the heart. And I just, I snuggled in. <laughs> <laughs> For a little, a little nap. 
little nap and he just left me there. He was so nice. And I came round, I was so embarrassed. And he was like, no, I've seen you. I've seen you again and again and again. You must be exhausted. So I've never fallen asleep on a patient yet. Um, the most tired I've been is, is normally when I'm getting to the end of a run of five or six, 12 hour shifts. I can feel my performance flagging and I can feel it's taking me longer to do things and longer to think about things. And it doesn't necessarily feel as safe either. I feel like I'm not as quick to react. And I wonder when you were doing these mega long weekends on call and extra long on call shifts, did you feel that it was unsafe? Did you have points where you were thinking this is not safe? Was it just how the system was? I think that was so much debated at the time that it was really hard to show that we were unsafe because we were so exhausted. I mean, it was such a physical exhaustion. Just sleep deprivation is so horrific. And I think because everybody was doing it, it was really hard to show that it actually had an impact. And in terms of how I felt, I think there was so much adrenaline. When there was something really, really important, like a patient had crashed, it was so adrenaline fueled that I think those bits worked okay. And I think I was often unsafe. I felt unsafe because I was at a very young age, like year two, I was the most senior doctor left in charge of accident emergency. Mm -hmm. So it was more supervision levels. Yeah. Generally, we have quite good supervision, especially at the very junior sort of first year level. You could argue that for the first couple of years, we always have too much supervision. And usually there's at least one or two more senior doctors on the ward at all time who are actually physically present. It'd be interesting to know when you started, if you felt like things were getting out of hand and you needed support, did you feel like your seniors were approachable? Did you feel like you could ask them for help or was it was it the opposite? It was almost the badge of honour not to call your registrar in. And you just went along with that because it was always the concern about your reference for your next job. Okay, yeah. And so not doing what was the norm, particularly if you wanted a career in a teaching hospital and you wanted to carry on in that vein, then you had to show that you could cope with the culture. From what I understand, that's one of the massive changes. When I applied to foundation training, it's a national application scheme based off your exam results, based off standardised tests. So you don't need to worry so much about references and word of mouth. It seems a lot less dependent on that. So that's applying. But let's talk about when you actually got to your first placement. Did you have a life? Yeah, I definitely, definitely had a life during my F1 year. I made quite an active decision that I was just there to get experience and find out what it's like to work on the wards and then at the end of it assess and, and start thinking about career planning. So I, I tried to make sure that in the time outside of work I was seeing friends, going swimming, going running. I started a pottery class until COVID put an end to that. So I think it's definitely a lot easier to have a life now at the junior level. I think as you progress up into registrar level it does become harder to find that work-life balance. You're doing a lot more shift work, a lot more night shifts, switching your body clock to and from the night shift. And that's a time when a lot of people start thinking about having families, having children. I mean, how did you find balancing 
working and having a life back when you were doing so many hours? Or was there no balance at all? Was it all uh, all one-sided? It was, I can't describe it. It was because the hours were so long, I would go out and see friends and I'd fall asleep. <laughs> and it was just that person on the cushion there, that's a junior doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that was just accepted. Everyone knew about it. There were questions being asked in the Houses of Parliament about how we were being exploited. I think it was because I changed career, I had to carry on doing these rotors. It was okay putting your life on hold for a year or so because you were kind of getting somewhere. But actually putting your life on hold for that much longer, for seven years, And I think it sounds to me like that also carries on longer now because once you go into specialty training, you become a registrar and you're still doing shift work. Yes, yeah. The registrar that I know, they're all still doing shift work up until consultancy. And I know that for some people who want to have families and want to balance that with a career, there are the options of having less than full-time training but then obviously that extends your training program as well it's about trying to find that balance and I know a colleague of mine she had a baby recently just before starting her core medical training and actually made the decision to send the baby to live with her parents-in-law for a year so she could get through the training program gosh more quickly so she could be there for her child later on rather than dragging it out I think you're absolutely right I think doing it for the first couple of years is fine. But then when you want to try and do long-term planning, that's when it becomes a lot more difficult. I've looked at trends and I can't find that doctors are much happier or less burnt out than they were in my day. And I think what you're beginning to say there, it's shifted now from the early years to the later years and then carrying on. Maybe not the utter exhaustion of those incredible hours that we did, but more the the intensity. When you're awake on a shift, are you awake the whole night? So normally, normally I'll try and stay up the whole night. Um, There are probably probably about a couple of hours you could get away with if the night's just not too busy of having a little bit of a nap. I normally just move straight through the night and carry on through it. Do you have a bed or you have a room? So at the hospital I'm working at, uh, there is a doctor's mess. It's not particularly well equipped. There are kind of sofas that you can sleep on. There's tea and coffee. Um, so there's no bed? Not not as far as I know. No, I don't think there is a bed available. Gosh. So other people would try and stay awake all night or are there some people who would just find a comfy chair and nod off on it? Other people I know definitely would find a comfy chair or find a quiet spot and maybe just curl up on the sofa, at least until their bleep went off again. Mm. What are the things that you think help and make the job better? So I think definitely having an effective team. One thing I found during COVID was that everyone was sort of pulling together for the first wave and you felt like you were part of a team and that you all wanted to support each other. And I think when you have a team where you're working with them towards a common goal, which is looking after the patients who are under your care, it's a lot easier to remain compassionate and it's a lot easier to go in and, and do the jobs, even the ones that you don't want to do, 
the pandemic has shown us the way healthcare could be. We're all working together and if we have adequate staffing. I'm off the ward now at the moment doing research, but from what I hear from friends, going into the second wave, the mood's been quite different. People are a lot more fatigued now. In the first wave, it felt like there was something that was going to happen no matter what we did, so we just needed to band together. Whereas now in the second wave, it feels like this was not inevitable and that we could have avoided it. So I think people feel a lot more fatigued now in the second wave. And I think in the future, there's going to be a massive impact on stress for healthcare professionals and and massive amounts of burnout from this period with the pandemic. I think it's going to have pretty poor consequences on on the mental health of of healthcare workers. What I found was that if I was with a team where we were all deciding together about the patient's future, that was so much more important. I've experienced working on wards where it feels like the nursing staff and the medical staff are on the same side. The work is so much smoother and you feel a lot happier in work as well. And I've worked on wards where it feels like you're pursuing two different agendas and the difference is extraordinary. Yeah, I agree. That teamwork element is so important in having an enjoyable job. And I think it's generally improved over time, but there still seems to be such a high rate of burnout. Definitely. And I think if it's not the long hours, then what is it that's causing the burnout? And I think that a loss of compassion is a massive part of burnout and a sense that you've forgotten why it is that you want to do the job and what the sort of central aspect of the job is, which is looking after these patients. One of the changes that I think can contribute to burnout is the sense of powerlessness that I feel back in the 80s and 90s, although you were working these very long hours, you perhaps felt a bit more empowered in looking after your patients and the people who are under your care. Whereas now it can feel a little bit like you're just there to be a service provider and you're there to do the cannulas and do the bloods, but there's no real deeper connection. You know, you're not working the same hours, but as a result, there can be a loss of this continuity of care. So you don't know the patients as well. And they can become like numbers on a page or just a set of statistics. And so that's the depersonalization, the objectification of the role. I don't ever remember feeling that about the patients. And in fact, the patients were what got you through. We've sort of been reflecting here about foundation training and being a junior doctor. I was wondering what you think the future of being a junior doctor is going to be like. Is it always going to be stressful and tiring and burn you out? Or is there hope on the horizon? There is nothing that prepares you for being the person who helps save someone's life or is part of someone losing their life. Mm -hmm. Nothing can prepare you for that when you're so young. We've both seen more death than anyone else in their 20s will see. Mm-hmm. And that really is, that, that's, that's tough. So in terms of going forward, I think it's very much about the way in which the system works for the good of the patient. So if you've actually got patient-focused care, then you will have happier doctors and nurses. If that's not at the core of improvements, then I think you're right. You just see people being seen as widgets 
and then responding as widgets. Fred, how do you see the future? I think that compared to your time as a junior doctor, I feel like it's much less of a sort of Wild West culture at the moment. There seems to be a lot more oversight and a lot more support, particularly when it comes to things like mental health and pastoral support. But I do think that that's come at the expense of a sense of powerlessness sometimes. And in terms of where we're going in the future, recently Health Education England released this report on on the sort of future of training of doctors saying that we need to become T-shaped doctors was their term for it. So doctors who have wise, general medical surgical skills, but then also a deep specialist knowledge. But I do think that if we don't have meaningful changes to the physical nature of the job, the provisions that we get, if we don't have meaningful changes to the level of support that we get, particularly psychological support following this pandemic, then I think these sort of reports into what it's going to be like in the future are just going to remain buzzwords. So I do think we need actual change on the ground. Fred, thank you. You're very welcome, Hilary. You can read more analysis on our website, where we break down the stats and examine the working conditions of Britain's junior doctors in detail. Just head to medicalnewstoday.com. I'm Dr Hilary Guite. This is a high-vis radio production for Medical News Today.